This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the middle of all stands the sun. For who in our most beautiful temple could set this light in another or better place than that from which it can at once illuminate the world? Some call it the light of the world, others the soul, still others the governor. Tresmegistus calls it the visible God, Sophocles Electra, the all-seer, and in fact does the sun, seated on his royal throne, guide his family of planets as they circle around him. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Nicolaus Copernicus, a pioneering astronomer who proposed that the Earth and other planets orbit around the Sun. It's hard to imagine now, but when Copernicus was born in 1473, the structure of the solar system was a complete mystery to scholars. There was no consensus on the order of the planets, the location of stars, or even the length of a year. There was only one thing that seemed indisputable. The Earth stood still and the sun circled around it. From the tall tower in Poland where he lived and worked as a Catholic church cleric, Copernicus looked up at the stars and knew there had to be a perfect order to the mysterious movements of the heavenly bodies. Driven by a hunger to understand the beauty of the cosmos, he spent his entire life working on a theory that would overturn every assumption astronomers before him had relied on and revolutionize the way humanity sees the universe. On February 14, 1990, the space probe Voyager 1 exited the heliosphere and took the first ever photograph of our entire solar system as seen from the outside. Humankind finally had a clear, literal picture of our place in the cosmos, a tiny blue dot orbiting around one of the innumerable stars in the vastness of space. 
450 years before that, without the aid of spacecrafts, computers, or even a telescope, a Polish astronomer named Nicolaus Copernicus was preparing to rock the world with his own portrait of the universe, a book full of groundbreaking mathematical proof that the Earth is in constant motion around the sun. Before he became an astronomer, Copernicus spent his childhood in the frigid northern regions of Poland. In the 1450s, a copper trader named Mikołaj Kopernik from the mining village Koperniki moved to the city now known as Torun, Poland. Here he met Barbara Watsonrode, the daughter of a city councillor. The two were soon married and living in a tall brick house with four children, Andreas, Barbara, Katerina, and their youngest son named Mikołaj after his father, better known by his Latinized name, Nicolaus Copernicus. Nicolaus was born on February 19, 1473. In superstitious medieval Europe, astrology was considered an accurate tool to predict the course of a person's life. People often consulted their horoscope before making major life decisions. The Copernic family might have visited an astrologer for clues to their newborn son's fate. When Nicolaus was born, the sun was in Pisces and the moon and Jupiter were in Sagittarius. This was thought to be the mark of an idealistic, visionary personality, someone who had high-minded ideas but sometimes got lost in impractical dreams. As the descendants of a prominent political family, Mikowai and Barbara must have had high hopes for their children. Unfortunately, in 1483, when Nicolaus was just 10 years old, his father died. There's no record of Barbara's death, but it's possible she might have died even earlier, leaving the four children orphaned. Whatever became of Barbara, after Mikowai's death, Nicolaus and his brother Andreas were taken in by their uncle, Lucas Watsonrode, the younger, who was a Catholic church cleric in a nearby city. Lucas took it as a personal responsibility to educate Nicolaus and Andreas and prepare them for a life in the clergy. There are no surviving records of Nicolaus' early years, but he probably attended the cathedral school in Wutzwawek. Copernicus was likely raised speaking German, and at school, he also learned how to read and write fluently in Latin, which was the language of the Polish royal court and the Catholic Church. Almost all of his surviving letters and documents are written in Latin, and later in life, he referred to himself only by the Latinized version of his Polish name. By the time he was an adult, he knew how to speak five languages, Latin, Polish, German, Italian, and Greek. In 1491, Copernicus entered the University of Krakow, a renowned school in Poland now known as Jagiellonian University. Krakow had become a major center of philosophical and scientific innovation during the early years of the Renaissance, and some of the brightest minds in Europe taught there during Copernicus' years of study. It also happened to be the only university in Central Europe with a department chair of astronomy. Copernicus studied the Seven Liberal Arts, a course of study that included grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. This degree typically prepared students for further studies in medicine, law, or theology. Copernicus was a bright student in every area. But he found his calling during the philosophy lectures he attended with Professor Albert Brzezewski. In the 1490s, Brzezewski was already a renowned astronomer. He had been hired to teach Aristotelian philosophy, but he also taught astronomy privately outside of class. It's safe to say that Brzezewski's theories had an impact on the young Copernicus. Brzezewski was one of the few scholars of the time who were skeptical of geocentrism, an astronomical model that puts Earth at the center of the universe. 
In the 15th century, there were two models for how the universe might be constructed. The first model, proposed by Aristotle, held that the planets were carried around the center of the universe in invisible spheres that fit together perfectly with no gaps between them. This model couldn't account for the fact that the planets varied in brightness at different times in the year, since it assumed that they were always the same distance from the center of the universe, that is, the same distance from Earth. The other model, proposed by the astronomer Claudius Ptolemy, adjusted Aristotle's theory by allowing that some of the planets could be moving in off-center circles so that they weren't always at the same distance. But this explanation was still unsatisfying since it broke the most basic rule of astronomy, that all the motions of the planets must be circular and uniform. Beyond that, astronomers couldn't agree on the order of the planets. It was generally agreed that the Moon and Sun circled the Earth, and the other planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, were somewhere past the Sun. But no one could agree on where the other three planets lay. There had to be an explanation that made it all fall into place. And in fact, the ancient Greek astronomer Aristarchus of Samios had figured it out in the 3rd century BC. The planets all revolve around the Sun, not Earth. But Aristarchus' writings were lost in antiquity. His legacy remains only through a handful of references to him in other ancient works, most of which weren't available to European scholars in Copernicus' time. An early manuscript of Copernicus' work briefly mentions that Aristarchus of Samios was of the opinion that the Earth is mobile. He had probably seen a cryptic reference to Aristarchus in an ancient philosophy book by Plutarch. But it's unlikely that specific details of Aristarchus' theory were accessible to Copernicus or any other academics at the time. European astronomers were in the dark, unaware of the advancements that had been made before them. When Copernicus started studying at the University of Krakow in 1491, he was immediately intrigued by what he learned in his astronomy classes. He saw something irresistible in the mysterious order of the cosmos. In the 15th century, the study of the stars was something akin to religion. Astrology was used to predict everything from the weather to the rise and fall of kingdoms. By understanding the order of the heavens, it was believed one could understand the order of the past, present, and future of life on Earth. The general consensus among scholars was that the Earth was comprised of four elements, Earth, air, fire, and water. And the sky was made of something entirely different, a substance called ether, which was perfect and eternal. Philosophers didn't believe the Earth was at the center of the universe because humankind was special or important. Rather, they thought the Earth was too perishable and imperfect to be a part of the perfect heavens. The Earth belonged in the very bottommost pit of creation, while the sun and stars circled high above it. Astronomy, then, was the study of something intrinsically more perfect than nature or humanity. For all the hard science and calculation involved in his work, Copernicus was driven by something intangible, divine beauty. He once wrote, quote, What could be more beautiful than the heavens, which contain all beautiful things? But like his professor, Copernicus was unsatisfied with the arrangement of heavenly spheres the ancients had laid out. He was determined to put the planets in their proper order and prove the system of planets to be more perfect than anyone could have imagined. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to historical figures. In 1495, while Copernicus was still in college, his uncle Lucas Vatsenrode was elected Prince Bishop of Varmia. In the Holy Roman Empire, most government positions were held by Catholic clergy members. A prince bishop was a Catholic bishop who also served as the political governor of a territory. Lucas was now the ruler of one-third of the diocese of Varmia. He knew what a brilliant mind his nephew had, and he had plans to groom Copernicus as his political successor. When he was 22, Copernicus left the University of Krakow for a position on his uncle's court. But if he wanted to climb the church's political ranks, he would need an education in canon law. Lucas sent Copernicus to Italy to study at his own alma mater, the prestigious University of Bologna Law School. Copernicus and his brother Andreas spent months traveling on foot across the Alps to get to the university. In addition to canon law, Copernicus continued studying astronomy. He was encouraged by a new professor, Domenico Novara. Novara was also skeptical of Ptolemy's astronomical theories, and he had already begun his own research to formulate a new theory. In the nights between his law classes, Copernicus worked with Novara charting the positions of planets and stars over the course of several years. Copernicus became more convinced than ever that there was a serious flaw in Ptolemy's theory. With more observations and calculations, he was sure he could figure out what it was. But soon Copernicus was once again called to other duties. After four years of studying in Bologna, he was called to Rome to lecture on mathematics. At the same time, he was working as an apprentice at the Papal Curia, the administrative center of the Catholic Church. It was an exciting time to be in Rome. Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo were both living in the city, though we don't know if Copernicus ever met either of the men. He had the chance to observe a lunar eclipse in November of 1500, but between his two jobs, he didn't have much time to dedicate to his true passion, astronomy. The next year, Copernicus left Rome for a short visit to his family in Varmia. He was almost finished with his canon law degree. He convinced his uncle's court to grant him an extension of his study period to return to school once again and study medicine. Poland was in desperate need of more doctors, and this would allow him several more years of studying before he had to start his time-consuming work as a cleric. He chose to go to the University of Padua, one of the best medical schools in Europe. Upon his enrollment, it became clear that Copernicus had no real intention of making a career as a physician. Alongside his medical classes, he took philosophy, classical literature, and Greek, all of which allowed him time to study classical texts on astronomy by Plato, Cicero, and Plutarch. Although his workload in medicine and astronomy must have been grueling, he still found time to take up the fine arts, poetry, drawing, and painting. His great literary achievement was translating the letters and poems of the Byzantine poet Theophylactus Simocata into Latin. This was an unusual choice for translation by a student of law, medicine, and astronomy. Far from being a philosophical text, Theophylactus's body of work was a combination of rustic fables and risque erotic letters. Copernicus explained his literary selection by saying that, quote, Theophylactus so interspersed the gay with the serious and the playful with the austere that every reader may pluck what pleases him most in these letters like an assortment of flowers in a garden, end quote. 
As someone with a wide range of interests and skills, Copernicus must have appreciated the variety of subject matter in Theophylactus's writings. He sent the manuscript to be printed in Krakow and dedicated it to his uncle Lucas. In the dedication, he admitted that he had toned down the erotic letters for the sake of his religious audience. Quote, just as physicians usually modify the bitterness of drugs by sweetening them to make them more palatable to patients, so these love letters have in like manner been rectified. Copernicus also spent time learning to draw and paint. He left behind a portrait of himself holding a flower, a symbol of the medical profession. The original painting has been lost, but it was used as a model for several portraits of Copernicus that other artists have made in the years since. In 1503, Copernicus received his license to practice medicine. That same year, he finally received his doctorate in canon law. With his degrees finally completed, at age 30, Copernicus returned to his uncle's court in Varmia and assumed his duties as a canon or a clerk of the church. He wasn't an ordained minister, and his responsibilities were mainly political. He accompanied his aging uncle on diplomatic journeys, drafted reports and memoranda to the National Assembly, and advised on legal and political matters. Copernicus was surely a competent clerk, but the other members of the chapter soon began to notice that his mind wasn't focused on climbing the political ladder. He was distracted from his duties by his longtime hobby, astronomy. Copernicus struck up a friendship with another canon named Tideman Giza, an ordained priest who shared his interest in astronomy. Giza encouraged Copernicus to share the theories he had been forming over the course of his studies. In 1510, Copernicus wrote out a brief overview of the idea that would revolutionize astronomy. Earth and the other planets orbit around the sun. This model of the universe came to be known as heliocentrism, from the Greek word for having the sun at the center. How did Copernicus jump to this conclusion? He had been focusing on the uncertainty among scholars about the locations of the planets. If it was assumed that Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn orbited around Earth, there was no mathematical model to explain why the brightness of the planets changed throughout the year. Astronomers couldn't agree on how far each of the planets were from the Earth, because the measurements and movements just didn't add up. But if the equation was shifted so that the sun was at the center and the Earth was in motion around it, the order of the other planets easily fell into place. Copernicus wrote, quote, What appear to us as motions of the sun arise not from its motion, but from the motion of the Earth and our sphere, which revolve around the sun like any other planet, end quote. He proposed that the Earth rotated on an axis once a day and revolved in a circular orbit around the Sun once a year. Copernicus anticipated that his theory would raise several new problems for astronomers. The most obvious question was how anything can stay tethered to the Earth if it's constantly spinning at a rapid pace. Isaac Newton wouldn't propose his theory of gravity for another 177 years. Another issue was philosophical. Copernicus had made the decaying earth into a part of the heavens, where everything was supposed to be perfect and imperishable. The old notion of the four earthly elements and the heavenly ether would have to be tossed out along with the old theory of an earth-centered universe. There was also the problem of the absence of parallax, or displacement, between the stars. If the earth was moving around the sun, the stars should appear closer together or farther apart at different times during the year, but they always appeared to be the same distance in relation to each other. Copernicus explained this away by proposing that the stars were too far away from the Earth and the Sun to show any observable parallax. Quote, 
So vast, without any question, is the divine handiwork of the most excellent Almighty. End quote. The universe was bigger than anyone had ever imagined before. In 1510, Copernicus sent a copy of his overview to a few trusted correspondents, but he hesitated to publish it. He knew he would face backlash from the public if he proposed such a world-rocking theory without adequate proof to back it up. The concept of a spinning Earth flew in the face of every established astronomical doctrine. And, sure enough, when the gossip about Copernicus' theory got out, he was mocked by scholars and laymen alike. A common joke spread that Copernicus had mistaken the Earth for a side of beef, put it on a spit, and roasted it around the sun's fire. He knew he would have to work harder if his theory was ever going to be believed. In 1513, when Copernicus had just turned 40, he began constructing a patio in the garden outside his house at Varmia, where he was still working as a church cleric. The paved platform gave him steady ground for his astronomical tools and an unobstructed view of the sky. He continued his work as a canon during the day, and at night he went out to map the paths of the stars. The next spring, he purchased living quarters inside the cathedral, a three-story tower where the top floor was covered with windows, perfect for his observations. He stayed up in his tower all night, watching the stars, drawing diagrams, and reading. The full text of Ptolemy's astronomical work, Almagest, had just become available in Latin for the first time, and Copernicus devoured his copy, covering the margins with notes and diagrams. That year, the Fifth Lateran Council met to discuss reforming the calendar. The system of 365-day years was off by some small degree, and over the course of centuries, the dates had shifted so severely that winter holidays were now taking place in the middle of the summer. Well, something had to be corrected, or the months would continue to misalign from the seasons. Copernicus was invited to speak to the council, but he didn't attend. He said his opinion was that mathematics were written for mathematicians. He didn't have the time to explain the precise calculations of the year's length to a group of clergymen who didn't even understand trigonometry. Fixing the calendar would have to be someone else's responsibility. But Copernicus couldn't ignore public issues entirely. In 1516, he was granted a new post at Allenstein Castle, where his duties as a clerk, advisor, and diplomat became even more. He soon became wrapped up in the issue of coinage. The government had begun minting new coins that were smaller and therefore of less material value than the old coins, and it had thrown the value of currency into massive depreciation. Copernicus wrote a treatise to the Prussian government, explaining that the government shouldn't have minted new coins with less value while the old coins were still in circulation. He recommended that the mints be consolidated into a single place for the entire country, and that as soon as new currency is introduced, the use of old coins should be prohibited. Unfortunately, the Prussian government ignored his advice, but his theories on currency were revisited by later economists, including Karl Marx, John Maynard Keynes, and Adam Smith. A few years later, Copernicus had to confront another political challenge, the Polish-Teutonic War. In 1519, the Kingdom of Poland declared war on the Teutonic Knights, a Catholic military order that had invaded Lithuania, one of Poland's allies. As a diplomat, Copernicus was in charge of negotiating with Albert of Prussia, the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights, but it was unsuccessful. In December 1519, 5,000 Teutonic soldiers invaded Varmia. They burned the city of Fromborg to the ground, and their next target was the castle at Allenstein. 
Copernicus was put in charge of defending the castle. He wrote to the king for military assistance and prepared fortifications and supplies for the oncoming attack. The Teutonic Knights arrived at the castle in January 1521 with twice as many soldiers as the Polish defense had rounded up. They demanded that the Polish surrender, but Copernicus refused. After 10 days of intimidation, the siege began. The Knights marched across the frozen moat and broke through the town's gate. Copernicus led the defense, directing the soldiers from on top of the city walls. The Polish were outmanned and underprepared, but Copernicus's leadership was so effective that after just one attempt, the Teutonic Knights withdrew and left the city alone. When Copernicus could find spare time away from his public duties, he continued working on his theory of the universe. It would require decades of observation to take all the astronomical measurements he needed, but he never strayed from his focus. He had been mocked and ignored before, but he knew he had the right idea, if only he could prove it. Copernicus never married or had children, but after his sister Katerina died, he took in her five daughters and raised them as his own. Not much information survives about Katerina's children, but when Copernicus died, he left his money to the five women, who were all married with children of their own by that time. Between his work as a canon and his responsibilities as a caregiver, he still found time late at night to observe the stars. He wouldn't rest until his life's work was complete. By the 1530s, Copernicus was in his 60s and his work was finally nearing completion, but he was still worried his calculations weren't perfectly correct. He was afraid that if he published it now and even one of his measurements was found to be incorrect, he'd be mocked and disbelieved. Decades had passed since he published his brief outline in 1510, and the general opinion of his ideas hadn't changed at all. A few friends urged him to share his findings with the public, but by and large, it seemed that nobody cared what Copernicus had to say. Until 1539, when a young scholar named Georg Joachim Redicus arrived unannounced at Copernicus's door. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, the story continues. When Redicus arrived at Copernicus's house in Frauenburg, he was only 25, but he was already well-connected in the world of mathematics. He had received his M.A. from the University of Wittenberg just three years earlier. After graduation, he remained at Wittenberg for two years as a professor of mathematics before taking a leave of absence to study with astronomers in Nuremberg. During his studies in Nuremberg, Redicus was introduced to Copernicus's short publication from 1510, and he decided to journey to Frauenberg to talk to the great astronomer who was challenging the entire structure of the universe. Describing his decision to visit Copernicus, Redicus said, Driven by youthful curiosity, I longed to enter, as it were, into the inner sanctum of the stars. Copernicus must have been surprised to find this strange visitor at his door, but once Redicus mentioned his admiration of Copernicus's theory about the universe, he opened his door and his mind to the young scholar. He took in Redicus as an apprentice, teaching him everything he knew about astronomy. Redicus was a keen student, and he was soon helping Copernicus calculate tables and proofs to support his work. Copernicus eagerly began to mentor his new student. He was nearing 70 years old, and an independent life was becoming more difficult for the aging man. He must have appreciated having a trustworthy assistant to do the things he was getting too old to do. There was an end goal behind all of Redicus's diligent work. 
he wanted to convince Copernicus to finally publish the thesis he had spent decades working on. Copernicus was obsessed with perfecting his theory of the cosmos, but he had no plans to publish it. He was still too afraid of the reaction. If he put forward an entire book of proof that the Earth revolved around the Sun, there were two possible results. It would either revolutionize astronomy forever, or his life's work would be mocked and ignored by a public that was too stubborn to change their perspective. As a Catholic cleric himself, Copernicus was well aware of the political and social power held by the Roman Catholic Church. He feared that he might come under fire for contradicting the Church's traditional view that the Earth was at the center of the universe. Contradicting Church doctrine on such a major issue could be construed as heresy. There are a few verses in the Bible that seem to imply the sun revolves around the Earth. For example, in one verse, Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, which implies that the sun is usually in motion. Redicus and Copernicus drafted an entire pamphlet explaining how their theory didn't contradict religious doctrine. In fact, they said, their expanded view of the universe was further proof of God's glory. Copernicus also wrote a letter to the Pope, Paul III, introducing his ideas and asking for his support. In the end, Copernicus never faced major opposition from the Catholic Church. It's a common misconception that the Church immediately rejected heliocentrism. In fact, Copernicus later dedicated his book to Pope Paul III, and the Church didn't take an official stance on his theory until decades after it was published. Instead, it was Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, who was one of his harshest critics. In 1517, Luther had initiated a split away from the Catholic Church when he sent a list of complaints to the Archbishop of Mainz. Soon, Luther's reform sect of Christianity was gaining popularity throughout Central Europe. Naturally, Luther wasn't a fan of the Catholic Copernicus and his unusual ideas about the Earth spinning in circles. He was overheard saying at lunch one day, quote, whoever wants to be clever must agree with nothing that others esteem. He must do something of his own. This is what that fellow does who wishes to turn the whole of astronomy upside down. And this was before Copernicus had published his full thesis, back when all he had presented to the public was an unsubstantiated hypothesis. If his short first work had gained him such a bad reputation, he didn't want to see how people would react when he had a full book of mathematical proof to back up his controversial theories. But Redicus kept pushing his mentor towards publication. He knew the benefits of changing the course of astronomy far outweighed the danger of being mocked by closed-minded theologians. By the end of the summer of 1539, Redicus had written a comprehensive summary of Copernicus's thesis. He sent it to a scholar in Nuremberg named Johann Schoner to gauge how well their full book might be received. Redicus's report summarized everything Copernicus had found over his four decades of research. But he neglected to mention the most interesting theory, that the Earth spins around the Sun, until page 19. Instead, he focused on something more agreeable to his audience, the cyclical pattern of time periods Copernicus had identified. It appeared that great kingdoms tended to rise when the star's planets were aligned at a certain point in their cycle, and then fall when the cycle was completed. The Roman Empire and the rise of Islam had both occurred at the same point in the planetary cycle, and Redicus predicted the fall of their own empire would happen in 100 years. For what it's worth, his prediction was a bit off. The Holy Roman Empire didn't dissolve until 267 years later in 1806. Nevertheless, his strategy worked. 
Redicus's report, with its scant mentions of Copernicus's heliocentric ideas, impressed Schoner so much that he sent it to the civic printing office to be published. This time, the reception was much warmer than Copernicus's previous publication. A number of scholars were excited about what Copernicus and Redicus had discovered, including a printer in Nuremberg named Petraeus. Petraeus wrote an open letter to Redicus congratulating him for his work. He was eager to see more details, and he encouraged Redicus and Copernicus to publish a more comprehensive work. But the reception wasn't entirely positive. A Lutheran theologian named Andreas Osiander sent Copernicus a congratulatory note and a piece of unsolicited advice along with it. He suggested that they preface their book with an introduction stating that their theory about the Earth revolving around the Sun wasn't intended to be taken as the truth. Osiander believed the work would be better received if Copernicus presented his conclusion about the Earth's motion as a hypothesis that may or may not be true, instead of presenting it as a definite fact. As much as Copernicus worried about being mocked for his ideas, he knew heliocentrism was the most revolutionary part of his work. He had no intention of presenting it as an unproven hypothesis. His friends encouraged him to keep his work the way it is, without Osiander's proposed introduction. They believed the calculations and proofs in the book would speak for themselves and prove Copernicus's theory correct. In a letter to Pope Paul III, Copernicus wrote, The crazier my doctrine of the Earth's motion now appeared to most people, so much more the admiration and thanks it would gain after the publication of my writings dispelled the fog of absurdity by the most luminous proofs. With a printer and an eager audience waiting on them, Copernicus and Redicus knew it was time to put the finishing touches on their thesis and send it out to the public. They reorganized and restructured entire sections of the manuscript, double-checked their calculations, and made their final measurements. Copernicus's health was declining in his old age, and he relied heavily on Redicus to finish the work. Finally, they gave the book a title, De Revolutionibus, which translates to On the Revolutions. Finally, in 1542, Copernicus put the manuscript in Redicus's hands and told him, as Redicus later recounted, Quote, to carry on and finish what he, prevented by old age and impending death, was unable to complete by himself. Copernicus was 69 now, and he was too weak to make the journey to a city where the book could be published. Redicus took the manuscript with him to Nuremberg to be printed at Petraeus's office. He oversaw the printing process, proofreading each page as the type was set. He hovered over the press for months, making sure everything was exactly as Copernicus would want it. But in October, Redicus was called off to a teaching position at the University of Leipzig. He departed from Nuremberg and left the proofreading to a good friend of the printer Petraeus, Andreas Osiander. Meanwhile, Copernicus was at home, waiting to see his life's work completed. As sections of the book were printed, they were sent for him to review. His health was declining, but he held out hope that he would live long enough to see his book through publication. In November 1542, Copernicus suffered a stroke and lost his memory, speech, and mobility. He became bedbound, wavering in and out of consciousness, unable to communicate. Osiander kept sending Copernicus the finished book chapters for review, but it was hard to tell if he was even aware of what he was reading. His health kept declining until the next May, when he slipped into a coma. 
He was unconscious for weeks. His caretakers knew it was almost the end, but he was still hanging on to life. On May 24, 1543, the final pages of De Revolutionibus arrived from Nuremberg. When the finished book was placed in Copernicus's hands, he woke up, looked at the book, and realized what he was holding. Knowing that his life's work was finally complete, he closed his eyes and died in peace. The elderly Copernicus was gratified to know that his world-changing discovery had finally been published. But if he had been healthy enough to read through the finished product, he might have had a different reaction. When Redicus opened his copy of De Revolutionibus, he was in for a horrible surprise. Although Osiander had argued with Copernicus and Redicus over the best way to present their theory, Redicus had still trusted Osiander's ability to oversee the book's printing, but now he was starting to regret that trust. The problems began on the title page. The title had been changed from simply De Revolutionibus to De Revolutionibus Orbium Coelestium, or On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. This small change in wording shifted the focus from the movement of the Earth to the movement of the planets and stars. After the title page was a letter to the reader that was similar to the introduction Osiander had proposed to Copernicus. The unsigned letter, appearing to be from the author himself, made it clear that the hypotheses in the book weren't meant to be taken as facts, and suggested that the true structure of the universe could only be understood through divine revelation. So far as hypotheses are concerned, it read, let no one expect anything certain from astronomy which cannot furnish it, lest he accept as the truth ideas conceived for another purpose and depart from this study a greater fool than when he entered it. Redicus was livid. He assumed it was Osiander's handiwork, and he threatened to, quote, so maul the fellow that he would mind his own business and not dare to mutilate astronomers any more in the future. But there was no way to prove that Osiander was responsible for the unauthorized changes. The only recourse they had was to blame the printer, Petraeus. Redicus leveraged every government connection he had to convince the Nuremberg Senate to issue a formal complaint against Petraeus for altering the text. But Petraeus denied making any changes to the text that Redicus had given to him. He pled his innocence in such strong words that the Senate secretary asked that his harsh language be, quote, omitted and sweetened before they sent it to the bishop. In the absence of any proof, Petraeus wasn't prosecuted. There was nothing Redicus could do to demand a reprint, but he crossed out the letter to the reader with a big red X in every copy of the book that passed through his hands. The irony is that Osiander's changes actually helped the book sidestep controversy and gain acceptance by the mathematic community. In the early years after its publication, most astronomers and mathematicians ignored Copernicus's theory of heliocentrism, but they hailed the technical sections for their precise new method of calculating astronomical movements. His proofs were so well-researched that no one could doubt their credibility. If the sun-centered theory in De Revolutionibus had been presented more prominently, the entire publication would have been dismissed as absurd. But presented as a purely theoretical text, some scholars gave Copernicus a fair chance and found that his calculations were correct, even if they disputed his conclusion about the Earth's motion. 
Apart from Reticus, few 16th century scholars dared to defend Copernicus's heliocentric theory until 1610, when Galileo Galilei conducted his own experiments with a telescope and found new, observable evidence that strengthened the idea that the Earth and planets revolved around the Sun. Almost 70 years after his death, Copernicus was in the spotlight once again. Galileo fervently defended himself against attacks from theologians and astronomers who maintained that the Earth was the center of the universe. Copernicus himself hadn't faced significant backlash from the Catholic Church, but by Galileo's time, the heliocentric system had gained enough notoriety that the Church had to decide whether to support it or join the Protestants in condemning it. In 1616, the Catholic Church finally issued an official judgment on the Copernican system. It was found to be false and contrary to scripture, and De Revolutionibus was banned. Despite all the proof Copernicus and Galileo had brought forth, the mainstream refused to accept the fact of the sun-centered universe. Around the same time, the German astronomer Johann Kepler was devising a heliocentric theory that improved the Copernican model. He observed that the orbit of the planets wasn't a perfect circle, but an ellipse. Following from that, the Sun wasn't at the geometrical center of a circular orbit, but rather it was the focal point of an elliptical orbit. Kepler's discoveries built on what Copernicus had found to help astronomers understand the structure and movements of the solar system. As science advanced over the centuries, Copernicus's vision of a Sun-centered universe was proven an undeniable truth. The theory presented in De Revolutionibus changed the way we conceptualize the universe around us and put humanity on the path to understanding the structure of the solar system. But perhaps the most significant scientific contribution Copernicus made was setting a new standard for scientific proof. The level of thought and detail he put into his work was unprecedented at the time. Unsatisfied with the holes in the theories of previous astronomers, he labored until he had a unified, comprehensive theory of the universe that was supported by pages of proofs and decades of observation. Although it took the work of generations of later astronomers to perfect the laws of Copernicus's universe, the system he proposed was more thorough and complete than the systems presented by Aristotle or Ptolemy. Copernicus set a new criterion that any later astronomical work would have to meet to be considered adequate. Living today, it's hard to imagine how severely Copernicus rocked humanity's perception of the universe around us. For as long as human society had existed, it was generally accepted that, for better or worse, our world had a special and significant place in creation. The consequences of removing the Earth from the center of everything extended far beyond astronomy into philosophy, theology, and culture at large. In 1808, the German writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe wrote, quote, Of all the discoveries and opinions, none may have exerted a greater effect on the human spirit than the doctrine of Copernicus. The world had scarcely become known as round and complete in itself when it was asked to waive the tremendous privilege of being in the center of the universe. No wonder his contemporaries did not wish to let all this go. But if Copernicus's discovery minimized the importance of humanity in the universe, it opened the door for endless possibilities to explore the great beyond. His model of the solar system was the gateway to every further advance in astronomy, space travel, the discovery of other planetary systems and galaxies, and even the possibility of life on other planets. 
If the Earth is only a tiny planet in a vast universe full of distant stars, it's not only possible, but probable that there are other intelligent life forms that are just as insignificant as we are. Perhaps someday we'll encounter another civilization that once again changes our perception of the universe. Copernicus's lifelong quest to understand the structure of the solar system revolutionized astronomy. Even though he didn't live to see the influence his work had on the world, he must have died satisfied knowing that after a lifetime of gazing at the night sky and wonder, he had finally unlocked the secrets of the heavens. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them all on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And once again, thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. Thank you.